Well, hey, welcome to Center Church. My name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad that you have joined us on this beautiful fall evening, whether you're been here in the room or you're with us online. And I want to start off with some good news, something to encourage you with. This is a clapping-type moment, okay? So don't leave me out to dry. So last weekend was the largest was the largest worship service that we've had in the history of our church, okay? So big thank you. You guys are awesome. Don't tell 4 o'clock. You're way better, okay? Um, we had 280 people join us here on campus, 280 men, women, and children who joined us, which means it's the largest service we've ever had if you don't count Easter. Man, and we celebrate that. And just so you know, we're not obsessed with numbers here, but we do celebrate numbers for two reasons. The first is that every number represents a person. It represents a man, woman, or child who's made in God's image and who Christ died to redeem. So I unapologet unapologetically celebrate it when people come to hear the good news of the gospel. So we celebrate it for that reason. The second reason we celebrate it is because, man, we want to celebrate you, because you are the ones who are serving and are praying and are giving and are inviting. You're the reason that people are coming to our church, and so I just want to celebrate you and say thank you to all of you that invest your time, your talent, your treasure to make this church possible. One of the things that's amazing to think about is that every Sunday when we're worshiping in here, right behind that wall, we've got 35 to 40 kids over two services, man, who are learning about Jesus in a fun, age-appropriate way because you all are volunteering in our kids' ministry. Right? That's just amazing to me to think about the impact that that's going to have on the next generation. So, man, we celebrate numbers because, man, we celebrate people and we want to celebrate you. And just so you know, our goal has never been to be a big church or a small church. It's not like in our vision statement, like be the smallest church in Charlottesville or like, you know, be the biggest church in Charlottesville. Our goal has always been to be a healthy church. We're just trying to be a healthy church. And as we've pursued that, man, God has blessed us with growth. And so I just want to publicly thank him for that and also thank him for you, for all of you that do such an incredible job to make our church possible. So would you just join me uh, in prayer towards that end? God, I do just praise you. I praise you for last weekend. I praise you for all that you've been doing in people's lives, that many, many people are coming and hearing the good news of the gospel. And we've seen people repent, believe in Christ and be born again. We've seen marriages restored, God. We've seen, man, parents empowered to raise their children. We've seen people who are skeptical but asking questions and seeing the love of Christ on display in our community. So we praise you for that. We praise you for the work you're doing here. And I praise you, God, for the people that you've given us. I'm so grateful for their service. I'm so grateful for their humble hearts. And I just pray, God, that you continue to bless us and do more than we could ask or imagine for the sake of Jesus' glory. Not our glory, but Jesus' glory in this, in this place. So, Lord, would you give us open eyes and open ears as we look at your word today? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can take it out. You can type to or turn to Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 17. Exodus 13, 17. So if you've been with us, we've been walking chapter by chapter through the book of Exodus. And today we come to what is probably one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. So even people who have spent no time in church have usually heard about the crossing of the Red Sea. Okay, so we're going to be talking about how God brought his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And what I want to work hard to do today is show you how incredibly relevant this narrative is for our lives today. That this wasn't just important for Israel then, but it's also important for us today. So look at verse 17 with me. It says this, when Pharaoh let the people go. That is a huge verse. Amen. That is a huge, huge verse. The people of Israel have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Do you know how long 400 years ago? The Mayflower landed at Plymouth Rock 400 years ago. Okay, that is how long the people of God had been oppressed and enslaved in a foreign land. And finally, after 400 years, God makes good on his promise. He brings his mighty hand and outstretched arm, 10 plagues. Finally, Pharaoh lets the people Go. And this verse marks a whole new beginning in the life of God's people. A whole new beginning in the life of God's people. This is a very important transition moment in the Bible. You see, the Passover last week was about Israel's salvation. 
The Exodus this week is about Israel's sanctification. The word sanctification simply means to be set apart to the Lord, right? To be set apart in holiness, to be set apart in distinctness. You see, God saved the people from judgment through the blood of the Lamb, and now he brings them through the Red Sea to set them apart as his holy people, that they might form a unique community that is God-centered, that is centered on the Lord and his word. Now, with all that in mind, imagine if after God saved the people by the Passover lamb, man, he, he delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, all the Israelites were like, I think I'm just going to stay in Egypt. Or like, I kind of like it in Egypt. This is what I'm used to in Egypt. I'm going to act exactly like Egyptians. I'm going to think like Egyptians. I'm going to behave like Egyptians. I'm going to treat parenting and marriage and money and sexuality and forgiveness and leadership exactly like the Egyptians. But a couple times a month, we'll get together and have a worship service to Yahweh. Like, would that be an appropriate way to respond to the salvation of the Passover lamb? No, it's, I mean, it's almost laughable to think about it, right? Them just kind of hanging out in Egypt. But isn't that what the majority of American Christians do today? And I, I think the problem in the American church is that we want the Passover without the Exodus. We want to be saved from our sins, but we don't want to be set apart as a holy people unto the Lord. And so do you know what most of us do? We try to figure out how much can I look exactly like my coworkers and my peers and my classmates and yet still be a Christian. We come at it from the totally wrong side. Instead of saying, how can I be totally set apart to the Lord's purposes in response to his salvation? We say, how little can I be set apart for the Lord's purposes and not feel bad? Right? We want the Passover without the Exodus. But just like that is an inappropriate way for the Israelites to respond to their salvation, it's an inappropriate way for us to respond to ours. And here's the thing. God has more for you than that. God has more for you than that. He doesn't just want to save you. He wants to deliver you into a whole new mission in life. He wants to take you out of Egypt into his people and onto his mission. He wants to orient your life around what his redemptive plan is in the world. He wants to bring you out of isolation and into the community of the people of God. He wants to bring you out of purposelessness in life into a compelling mission to give all of your life to. That is what God wants to do. Right? And I'm praying for some of you today that today will be the day that you finally make a clean break with Egypt and you're like, I'm following the Lord. I'm done having one foot in the world and one foot in the church. I'm tired of being a half Christian and a half American. I'm ready to go all in with God. I'm ready to move forward. And that is what this passage is about. It's about Israel leaving Egypt, moving into the wilderness, following God by faith, and it's about us doing the same thing. It's going to help us do it by showing us four ways that we move forward in faith, okay? Look at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But instead, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So the way of the land of the Philistines was the most direct route between Egypt and the Promised Land. Scholars say it would have taken about two weeks Instead, God led the people of Israel by a route that would take them 40 years, okay? Not the fastest route between A and Z. Now, why did God do that? Because God knew that the shortest way was also the most fortified way. That if they went the shortest way, they would encounter war immediately. He knew they weren't ready for it. And so in his wisdom, he led them on a longer way that ended up being a better way. Which leads to the first thing that we've got to learn if we're going to move forward in faith is this. To move forward, we have to trust God's wisdom. To move forward, we have to trust God's wisdom. Conventional wisdom said, go the shortest route. God's wisdom said, go by the way of the sea. 
I mean, it didn't make any sense. It's like, why would we go way out of the way? I don't have a map up here, but I mean, it was way, it's like, it's like if you were in DC and you're like, I'm gonna go to Atlanta via New York City. It's like that all your flights ever, right? You're like, why am I doing this, you know? I've covered the entire continent of the United States to go from Charlotte to Atlanta. Anyway, uh, but that's, I mean, functionally, that's what God had them do. The reason was that God had a higher perspective than them. You see, God was zoomed out. God could see what would happen, and so he took them the longer way that ended up being the better way. You see, if we're going to move forward in faith, we have to learn to trust God's wisdom when it is contrary to conventional wisdom. We have to learn to trust God's wisdom when it is contrary to conventional wisdom. The book of Isaiah makes this clear in Isaiah 55. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. The Lord has a higher and better view of things. All right, let me give you two practical examples that I thought of this week. Conventional wisdom says cohabitate before marriage, okay? Cohabitate before marriage. And the argument is, goes like this. Man, living together is a good way to see if you're compatible. It's a good way to test your chemistry, to see if your chemistry is strong enough to kind of hold together living together. Uh, man, maybe it helps financially. Maybe you could afford rent together, but you couldn't separately. And if it goes well, great, go ahead and get married. If it doesn't go well, you can end things, and you don't have kind of the collateral damage of divorce, right? So that's kind of conventional wisdom, and it kind of makes sense in, in one way. And that's why the majority of, of people today cohabitate before uh, getting married. That's conventional wisdom. God's wisdom is very different. God's wisdom says, hey, do not come together in the bed or in the home before you come together covenantally in marriage, okay? That is God's wisdom. Now, that seems very wrong to us. It seems very wrong to our culture, but data has proven that God's way is best. If your goal is to have a strong, healthy marriage, then God's wisdom is absolutely best. Let me read a quote from the State of Our Unions, which is an annual research project conducted by the University of Virginia, okay? So this is not like Josh, okay? This is the University of Virginia. So if you don't like this data, get mad at UVA, okay? This is what they said, and I quote, there is a substantial body of evidence that indicates those who live together before marriage are more likely to break up after marriage. People who cohabitate before marriage end up getting divorced at higher rates than those who do not. So what does that show us? Conventional wisdom seems better, but in the end, if your goal is a healthy, strong marriage that lasts, it simply is not. God's wisdom is best. Let me give you another example. Conventional wisdom says, I'll be more generous when I make more money, right? You don't have to raise your hand, but you've all thought that, right? It's like, it's like, oh man, I, you know, who doesn't want to be generous, right? All of us want to be generous. None of us want to be stingy. I, um, I, heard a, I read a survey that uh, said that 99% of millennials said that they are either very generous or generous. But last year, the average millennial gave less than $50 to charitable causes. So I'm like, what do they mean by generous? You know, like, is it like I winked at someone? You know, like I gave someone directions? I don't know what that means. But everyone wants to be generous. None of us want to be stingy, but we often tell ourselves, I'll be generous when I make more money. Right? Man, I, I have student debt. I just started my career. I'm trying to save to buy a house. Or we have young kids. We got to feed them and clothe them and put them through private school. Like when I make more money, then I'll start giving to the church. Then I will become more generous. That's conventional wisdom. We sort of convince ourselves with that. We actually encourage one another in it. And we tell them, no, no, you don't actually have to give. That's okay. Just let, let all the older people with all the money give. And all the older people are like, who are you referring to? You know? Well, that's, that's conventional wisdom. God's wisdom says, no, no matter how much money you make, put God first in it. Give him your first and your best, no matter how much you make, and watch him bless it. That's, that's just God's wisdom from front to back in the scriptures. And again, that doesn't seem right to us, but do you know what's been proven out? It is right. Let me read to you uh, Paul, what's his name here? Paul Piff, a psychology researcher at Cal Berkeley, not a Christian university. Paul Piff, psychology researcher at Cal Berkeley, found that generosity does not increase with wealth, and in fact, wealth can actually be an obstacle to it. 
that you simply do not get more generous the more money that you make. Why is that? Because generosity is not an issue of resources, it's an issue of character. Generosity is not an issue of resources, it's an issue of character. If you are generous with a little, you will likely be generous with a lot. If you are not generous with a little, you will not likely be generous with a lot. Now, let me, let me just encourage you and brag on our church a little bit. Our church is in a very healthy place financially, and it enables us to do a lot of ministry. But do you know why we're in a healthy church, uh, place financially? It's not because we've got like one or two CEOs who are bankrolling everything. It's because we've got a lot of ordinary people who are putting God first in their finances. We've got retirees, and we've got young professionals, we've got college students, we've got young families who are saying, look, I don't have a lot of money laying around, right? I've got student debt, I'm trying to buy a house, I'm trying to start my career, I'm trying to put my kids through school, I'm trying to do all these different things, but I'm going to trust the Lord's wisdom, I'm going to put him first, and because you are doing that, man, God is doing some amazing things through our church. So I just want to thank you for that. Man, conventional wisdom says when I make more money, I'll be more generous. God's wisdom says if you're not generous with a little, you're not going to be generous with a lot. Here's the thing, when we trust God's wisdom, we grow in godliness, we grow in godliness. So here's the question. Where do you need to replace conventional wisdom in your life with God's wisdom? Where do you need to replace conventional wisdom with God's wisdom? Where do you need to stop operating according to the principles and the priorities of the world and start operating by the principles and priorities of God's word? Verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. This is a very strange verse. It just is. Everybody's trying to get out, of, get out of Egypt. Everybody's rushing around, and Moses is like digging through caskets. Right? This is very strange. Growing up, uh, my dad had this habit of washing the car as soon as we were trying to go anywhere. Do you ever have this? Like, we're like trying to get on the road for vacation. My dad's like pulling into the car wash. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that is so frustrating. And then a few weeks ago, I found myself, we're getting ready to go on a trip, and I was like, I wonder if I have time to vacuum the car. You know, like, I was like, I've become my father. Um, but that's what Moses is doing. You're like, why is he digging? This is a weird time to be doing this. Why is he digging through caskets looking for Joseph's bones? Because in Genesis chapter 50, the patriarch, jo the patriarch Joseph prophesied. And he said, hey, one day God is going to fulfill his promise. and He's going to give you an exodus. And when that happens, I want you to take me with you. Come get my bones and take me to the promised land so I can be buried in our ancestral tomb. Right? What did Joseph do? Joseph believed God's promises and acted on it. One author found 7,147 promises in the Bible from God to man. 7,147 promises in the Bible from God to man. That includes things like God is always good, God will never leave you or forsake you, that he made you on purpose for a purpose, that he gives you power to overcome sin, and that he's in control of your life even when it feels chaotic. You see, moving forward in faith often requires taking hold of God's promises, just like Joseph did. Verse 20, and they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. So Israel started off in Ramses, that's kind of where they lived, and they moved from Ramses to Succoth, and they moved from Succoth to Etham. Let me ask you a question. Why include all these ancient Egyptian cities? They're all gone. I mean, you can't find them now. I mean, you know, it's like 3,500 years ago. The reason is that this was a historical event. It might encourage you to know that Christianity is not based on allegory or philosophy, but on history. It's not based on ideas or like this would be helpful, but like this actually happened, that a real people traveled between real cities and a real God intervened in their real problems, right? And the good news is because it's not based on allegory, it's not based on philosophy, it's based on history, it's a real God who really moves in our lives today. And notice also that, also that Ethan was on the edge of the wilderness, okay? What does that mean? It means this was the last stop. I mean, it was the last city in Egypt. You ever been driving south of Richmond on 85, and you're like, if I don't go to the bathroom now, it's not going to happen. You know, it's like, it's like four hours between Richmond and Durham, and you're like, I don't even know what's here, you know? Uh, and some of you were from there, and you're like agreeing with me right now. Um, that, that's what it was. I mean, you were on the very edge of 
civilization. Here's what this meant. When you left Etham, you left behind everything that you'd ever known. I mean, think about it. Israel had been here for 400 years. The beliefs, behaviors, and customs of Egypt were much more natural to them than the beliefs, behaviors, and customs of God. Right? And God is calling them to leave behind everything that they've ever known and walk by faith into this whole new way of living. And I wonder if some of y'all can maybe relate to that today. Maybe God has been moving you. You've been coming around. You've come into MC and you feel God drawing you to himself. But man, this is totally different than anything you've ever experienced. Just the, the beliefs, the behaviors, the culture of our church is just different than anything you've ever known. So it doesn't feel natural. Maybe you've recently realized that you're not a genuine Christian. You, you've seen other Christians and you're realizing, I'm not actually a Christian. And so you're trying to figure out what does real faith look like? What does it mean for my life? What does it mean I'll have to man, lay down and sacrifice? Or maybe... You are genuinely a Christian, but you've just been living in the world. You've just been like living in Egypt, not worried about living in Egypt, and all of a sudden, I'm kind of putting my finger on it, and you're like, that's me. I, man, I have, I have my moment where I prayed to receive Christ, but man, I have not followed him. I have been exactly like the world and all of my classmates and all of my coworkers and all of my peers, and God is telling you, hey, today's the day. Today's the day for you to leave Egypt and to follow me into the wilderness, but it's hard because all you've ever known is Egypt. Right? It doesn't feel natural. So if you're going to take that step of faith, what do you need? You need exactly what the Israelites need. You need to know that God is leading you, that God is leading you. Look at verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. The Lord led the Israelites so they knew where to go. You see, they weren't stumbling in the dark. They were being led into the light, which leads to the second thing that we learned. Number two, to move forward, we need God's leadership. To move forward, we need God's leadership just like Israel had. You see, God led them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. I can imagine you saying to me, Josh, I would love to have a pillar of cloud that told me God's will for my life. Like, could it just hover over the girl I'm supposed to marry? You know, how awkward would that be in here? You know, you're like... (laughs) Oh, you know, is that my cloud or his cloud? I don't know whose cloud it is. Um, you know, or like, can, can the pillar of fire just like go over the degree program, the building I'm supposed to go to? You know, like, I, I, it would be nice, right? We, we, we think, well, sure, if I had that, then I would follow God too. Um, the, the truth is we actually have something better. You see, at this point, the people of God didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the Bible. So God gives them this pillar of cloud to show them, you see what it says? The way. You see, there was a way through the wilderness, but it had to be revealed to them. There were no roads in the wilderness, but there was a way. And the way is used all throughout the scriptures to refer to God's will as revealed in God's word. So in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, it says, look for the ancient way where there is life. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And all throughout the book of Acts, the way is used as shorthand to refer to followers of Jesus. You see, the pillar of cloud revealed the way Israel should go. The scriptures reveal the way we should go. The pillar of cloud revealed the way the Israelites should go. The scriptures revealed the way we should go. The scriptures show you the way of salvation. The scriptures show you the way of righteousness, the way of wisdom, the way of blessing, the way of Jesus. You see, to move forward in faith, you need to know that you're not just walking blindly, but you're being led by the light. And you're walking a path that countless saints have walked before you and found faithful. That countless saints have walked before you and found, no, there is life here. This is the narrow way, it is the straight way, and it leads to life. We don't have a pillar of cloud, man, we have an inspired word. 
But what about the pillar of fire, right? That'd be kind of intense and cool, right, if you had a pillar of fire going everywhere. Well, what did the pillar of fire do for the people? Well, number one, at night, it helped them see the way. So it, it helped them see it, and then it also helped them travel at day, during the day and during the night. So it helped them understand the way, and it helped them keep going in it. What does that correspond for us today? The Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 2, we're told that the Holy Spirit descended on the church in tongues of what? Fire. Tongues of fire. What does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? It fills us with spiritual light. It helps us read the scriptures and understand them. It helps us apply the scriptures to our lives. Have you ever had the experience where before you were a Christian, you just read the Bible and were like, I don't, this is so random. I don't know any, what is this even talking about? And then after you become a Christian, you read the same thing and it's just like springing to life. What's happening? The Holy Spirit is opening your eyes that you might see wonderful things in his law. That's what the Spirit is doing. What else does the Spirit do? The Spirit fills you with power that you might keep walking in the way right? The pillar of fire helped the Israelites walk day and night. The Holy Spirit helps us move forward day and night. You can think of it like um, the, the Word of God is like train tracks, and the Spirit of God is like the locomotive engine, okay? You need both. You need the Scriptures to show you the way to go, but you need the Spirit to give you power to get moving, right? We as a church want to be a church that is taught by the Word and empowered by the Spirit, taught by the Word and empowered by the Spirit. They always complement one another. They never contradict because the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, so he's not going to tell you to do anything that's contrary to the scriptures. So, you know, anytime somebody comes to me and says, like, hey, I really think God told me to divorce my wife, I'm like, no, I'm confident he didn't. Like, I don't know who it was, but it wasn't God because I've got a verse, okay? Like, like, the Holy Spirit will never contradict what is clearly revealed in the scriptures in your life, and we need both. If we're going to move forward in faith, if we're going to follow the leadership of God, we need his word and we need his spirit. Okay, so how do you get those things? Well, it's pretty obvious how you get the Word of God, right? I mean, you could get it in 17 different formats, 47 different translations. You could listen to it. You could read it. You could watch a dramatic demonstration of it. I mean, there's an amazing amount of ways to get the Word of God into your life today, right? So you need to read the Word of God. That's how you get it. Man, how do you get the Holy Spirit? Through repentance and faith. Through repentance and faith. The Scriptures say that anyone who is born again is filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to have like a second super spiritual encounter to get the Holy Spirit. The only reason you would want to repent and believe is because the Spirit's already working in your life. So good news, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit's already in you. And you're like, I didn't know that. Congratulations. It's a fantastic thing I gave you today, okay? You've got the Holy Spirit, okay? So if you've got the Holy Spirit, you're a Christian, you start devoting yourself to the Word of God, you get in the people of God, you're going to find the leadership of God, okay? That's how God leads us. He doesn't give us a pillar of fire. He gives us a people, he gives us a word, and he gives us a spirit. So there might be two kind of buckets you might fall into, you might have a problem with. You might be someone who's genuinely a Christian, you have the Spirit, you just don't know the Bible very well. So what you need is you just need to study the Bible. We would love to help you with that. It's why we have 14 Bible studies that meet all over the city on different nights of the week. It's why we just preach through the Bible every Sunday. Man, we want to help you understand the Word of God so that you can take the promises of God, you can build your life on it. You can ask in every season of life, what does God's Word have to say about parenting? have to say about education, have to say about career, generosity, being a grandparent, forgiveness, just all these different things. We want to help you do that. Or you could be in the bucket where you're fairly familiar with the Bible, but you just don't have any desire for it. Man, you have no desire to study it. You have no desire to submit to it. You have no desire to apply it in your life. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you went to vacation Bible school. Maybe you like know some of these stories. You just don't care. You just don't really have a passion for it. It could be that you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that's exactly why it is, but if over a long period of time you have no desire for the things of God, there's no evidence that the Spirit is at work in your life. So what do you need? You need to repent, believe, and surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, right? And we would love to talk with you about that. We have stories here of people who've said, man, I knew the Bible growing up. I came here. I was convicted that I didn't really have a passion for it, and God has saved me. And we say, praise the Lord for that.
Okay, so we need both the word and the spirit if we're going to follow the Lord out into the wilderness, okay? All right, chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi ha Now, if you don't know how to pronounce a word, say it quickly and with confidence, okay? Um, between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zaphon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So after leading the people the long way around, God now tells them to backtrack, to go backwards, and then to encamp in a virtually indefensible position. So encamp with the sea on one side so you can't retreat, and in a valley so that you you have no defensible positions. I mean, this is, militarily, this is a terrible strategy. Why is God doing it? Because he knew when Pharaoh heard this, when he heard the people were wandering around, he would say, all right, now's my chance to go and get them back. And in so doing, God was going to execute final judgment against Pharaoh, against Egypt, and glorify himself. Now, you might hear that, and you might think to yourself, you maybe would say this out loud, maybe you wouldn't be so bold to say it, but you might think, man, you know, it's regrettable that God is so committed to his own glory. I mean, it sounds a bit narcissistic, doesn't it? Now, let me ask you a question. Why is narcissism wrong? Right, like, why is it wrong for you to be consumed with yourself or me to be consumed with myself? Well, the short answer is because you're not that great, right? And I'm not that great. Like, I didn't create the world. I don't keep the world spinning. Like, I, I you know, I go away for a week and everything keeps happening, right? So it's, it's morally wrong for us to act like the world is all about us when it's really not all about us. But it would be morally wrong for God to do anything but act like the world is all about him because it is all about him. He actually did create it. It really will stop spinning if he leaves. Like, that really will happen. And when you start to understand that, you're like, this is totally appropriate. Um, think of it this way. I, uh, I got to do a wedding here on Friday night, which is awesome. Uh, and two of our members that, that were married, and it was, it was set up, it was really beautiful in here. And so I was standing right here, and the, the groom was right here on my left. When the music changed, right, everybody stood up, and the, the doors opened in the back. And here comes the bride in this beautiful dress, you know, down the aisle. Um, now, in that moment, did anyone think to themselves, oh, how self-consumed. I cannot believe how conceited she is narcissism you know no why because a bride is the appropriate focal point of a wedding right well in the same way that a bride is the appropriate focal point of a wedding god is the appropriate focal point of the universe so it is utterly appropriate for him to glorify himself because that is why all of us exist okay so that's what he's doing verse five when the king of egypt was told that the people had fled the mind of pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people and they said what is this we have done that we have let israel go from serving us So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officials over, with officers over all of them. So when Pharaoh heard what was happening, again, he said, what have I done? I want to go get these people back. So he took 600 kind of chosen captains of Egypt and then along with a bunch of other chariots and chariots were kind of like the F-15s of the day. I mean, they were like these incredible military devices. And he went in pursuit, verse eight. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by pi hai in front of Baal-Zephon. So Pharaoh overtook Israel while they were encamped by the sea. Now here's the thing that you've got to understand. Pharaoh didn't have enough men to overwhelm Israel. I mean, the author's making that point. Pharaoh had 600 chosen captains. Israel had 600,000 fighting men who went out equipped for battle. Pharaoh is banking on the fact that the people of God will not fight him. He's just assuming that he's going to show up and they're not going to have the will to fight. He's going to overwhelm them with his chariots and they're just going to come willingly back into bondage. 
which leads to the third thing we learned. If you're going to move forward in faith, we have to fight sin. We have to fight sin. Just as Pharaoh wouldn't give up his servants easily, your idols won't give you up easily. Have you ever, have you ever tried to leave something behind only to find it popping up everywhere? Have you ever done that? You're like, all right, I'm going to start walking in purity and your ex-girlfriend starts texting you, right? Or like, man, I'm going to like put better boundaries in at work and all of a sudden you, it's like you have, you're up for a promotion that requires more hours and more travel. Man, it's like your idols will not let you go easily. You see, to move forward, we have to be ready to fight sin. Because friends, the world is not neutral. Just like Pharaoh was not neutral, the world is not neutral. Its value system is coming after you aggressively. You wanna give you an example? In November and December, $2 billion, B, billion dollars is gonna be spent on advertising, convincing you of one story. Materialism will make you happy. And it's gonna come at you in every imaginable category. It's gonna be on your phone. It's gonna be on your tablet. It's gonna be on your computer. It's gonna be on your television. It's gonna be on billboards. It's gonna be on the radio. It's gonna be on Spotify. It is gonna be on every single channel. That is not neutral. The world is coming after you. It wants you. It will not give you up easily, which is why in Romans chapter 12, verse two, Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The implication of that text is the world is trying to form you into a mold. And you have to resist it. And if you don't resist it, you will be formed by the world. Which is why we have to resolve ourselves to train, to grow, to fight. Here's the reality. No one has ever drifted towards a godly marriage. They haven't. No one has ever drifted towards being godly parents. No one has ever drifted towards meaningful Christian community. No one has ever drifted towards sacrificial generosity, sexual purity, deep knowledge of the Bible. You don't drift towards godliness. Do you know what you drift towards? Netflix. That's what you drift towards. It's just true. So if you want to grow in Christ, you've got to recognize that the world is after you. Pharaoh was after the Israelites. They had to resolve themselves to fight. The world is after us. We have to resolve ourselves to fight. So here's my question. What area of your life do you need to start fighting for? What area of your life do you need to start fighting for? Is it your kids? Is it your marriage? Is it community? For some of you, the best way that you could fight for community is just come to the weekend or December. If you want 2022 to be different than 2021, a great first step is to get into community. And that's how you do that. So what area do you need to start fighting for? Man, if we want to move forward in faith, we've got to resolve ourselves to fight. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Really encouraging question. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So when the Israelites saw Pharaoh's army, they were seized with fear. They criticized Moses and they forgot their salvation. We often do the same things, don't we? Like when you're seized with fear, when I'm seized with fear, what do we do? We start criticizing other people and we stop prioritizing Christ. I mean, wasn't that the pandemic for many of us? It was like, no one's doing anything right. I'm not reading my Bible anymore. I'm on news apps all the time. It's like, what happened? It's like, you got afraid. I got afraid. We stopped following Christ. We stopped. We took our eyes off of Jesus. That's what happened. Now, verse 13 is an incredible picture of what spiritual leadership looks like. Here's what Moses did. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. That is spiritual leadership. Can I tell you, that's why you need to be a part of a church. 
It doesn't have to be this church. It really doesn't. But you need a church. You need some peers and you need some pastors that when you are doubting and you are scared and you are afraid will lovingly say, stand firm. Fear not. The Lord is faithful. He's been faithful in your life. He will be faithful in your life. Stop being afraid. And that's why we need the church. We need Moseses in our life to call us to believe. You know what? It's why you need more than just people your exact same age. It's why that we need the wisdom of the old and the strength of the young. Because you need somebody who's 70 that can look at you and be like, it's going to be okay. It really is. I know the exam feels like a lot. It's got, like you just need people with perspective that can call you to stand firm and can say, look, I have a lifetime of testimony of God's faithfulness that I'm, I'm giving to you now. Stand firm. The Lord will fight for you. Verse 15. This is a really important verse. The Lord said to Moses, this is Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. All the Bible scholars agree that God is rebuking Moses here. This is God rebuking Moses. And a fair question to ask is, why is he rebuking Moses? Every indication we have is that all Moses did was believe the promises of God and call the people to stand firm. The reason is that Moses is the mediator, okay? Moses is the mediator between God and man. He was so closely related to God that when Moses spoke, God spoke. And yet so closely related to the people that when the people sinned, Moses was rebuked on their behalf. Okay, that is what it means to be a mediator. We're going to come back to that. And this is what God said to Moses. He said, hey, tell the people, go forward. Go forward. That is God's word for us today. I know you're afraid. I know you've got a bunch of reasons why you can't. Go forward. I will fight for you. Verse 16, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So God said, stretch out your hand, Moses, and I will divide the sea. I will miraculously make a way through the sea where there is no way. And then the angel of the Lord, who first appeared to Moses at the burning bush, goes from before the people and becomes their rear guard. He makes it so that the Egyptians cannot attack the people in the midst of the night. So the deliverance of Israel starts and ends with the appearance of the angel of the Lord. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. A lot of allusions to Genesis here. God can call the dry ground out of the waters. That's what he did in Genesis. That's what he's doing when he's recreating his people here. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So uh, my college religion professor told me um, that the Red Sea was not the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea, and that it was more just kind of like a swampland, kind of like my yard when it rains a lot. And all the Israelites did was walk through kind of like a marshland, and then because the Egyptians were driving chariots, it clogged their wheels, and that's all that happened. Um, it, it just doesn't fit the narrative. The word wall here, the water was like a wall on their left and to the right, refers to a city-sized wall, like 15 to 20 feet. So that's how, I mean, imagine 15 to 20 feet, two basketball hoops worth of water just standing up on either side. That is a lot of water. That is not a swamp, okay? That is a sea, sea, large wall of water. Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. 
And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. This is the first and only time the Egyptians refer to God as Yahweh, the Lord. They have finally been convinced that he is the one true God. As the Israelites escaped through the sea, God threw the Egyptians into a panic. The very panic that Pharaoh was hoping to inflict on God's people, God actually inflicted on them. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel, the people of God, walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. So Moses stretches out his hands again. God brings the water back into its place and totally consumes the entire Egyptian army. So Israel was saved, and the moment they emerged from the other side of the sea, they entered an entirely new season in their life as the people of God. No longer slaves in Egypt, now set apart as the unique people of God. The Lord led his people out of Egypt through the waters. Now what's interesting is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, Paul calls this their baptism into Moses. Their baptism into Moses, an event that followed their salvation and marked an entrance into new life as the people of God which leads to our final point. Number four, to move forward, you might need to be baptized. To move forward, you might need to be baptized. Romans chapter six tells us that baptism is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. So when you go down under the water, it is symbolizing that you are dying to your old life. And when you come back out of the water, it symbolizes that you are walking a new life in Christ, that you are now a part of the people of God. You see, the blood of the Passover lamb saved the Israelites from judgment but passing through the waters set them apart as God's people. The same is true for us. The blood of the lamb saves you from judgment. The blood of Christ shed for you, but passing through the waters of baptism is what sets you apart as God's people. And for some of you, baptism is the next step that you need to take. I think you know it. And you've been putting it off because it seems really dramatic. And today needs to be the day that you put a line in the sand and say, yes, I'm done living half in Egypt and half in the church. I mean, I'm gonna get baptized. I'm gonna make a break with my old life and I'm gonna follow Christ and what he has for me. And as I talk about baptism, I know for a lot of you, objections start to come to mind. You might think like, Josh, I I just get really nervous anytime I think about baptism. I would say, praise the Lord. We always get nervous about important moments in our life, right? That means you understand baptism correctly, that it is a solemn, important moment where you are saying, I'm done with the world and I'm following Christ. Um, Others of you might say, Josh, I just, I cannot speak in front of a big group of people. I obviously don't have that problem, right? But I get it. I mean, I get that that's a really, really scary thing to do. And people will be like, why do I have to get baptized in front of a bunch of people I don't know that well? Why do I have to talk? Because it's a public profession. That's what baptism is. It's you saying, I am publicly declaring that Christ is my Lord. I'm not ashamed of him and I'm gonna follow him with the rest of my life. That's why we do it on Sundays right here. It's why we give you a chance to testify to the grace of God in your life. Maybe others of you are like, well, Josh, I'm already saved. I would say, great. I wouldn't baptize you if you weren't saved. (laughs) Like going through the waters didn't save the Israelites. 
The blood of the Passover lamb saved them from judgment. Passing through the water set them apart as God's people. Baptism doesn't save you. Repentance and belief in Christ saves you. Baptism symbolizes that you are breaking with the world and that you are following Christ with his church. Or I could go on and on. I talk to people, I mean, I've been a pastor for like over a decade. I've heard a lot of excuses about baptism. And I think underneath most of them is something that's really a little more raw. It's like, what if I screw up? Right? Like, what if I make this big public profession and I'm going to follow Christ, I'm in the church, I'm going for it, and then like, what if I go back to that relationship? What if I go back to that website? What if I go back to that habit? Am I just lost forever? Guys, the reality is you will. I mean, if you want some encouragement, Israel went through the, the waters and within a chapter messed up. One, that's not a long time, one chapter. But what did they have? They had a mediator, Moses, who could intercede for them, mediate between God and man. Well, what do you have? You have a much greater mediator. You have the mediator that all of Moses' life was pointing to. You have the perfect mediator, the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If you are in Christ, you have the greatest mediator you could have who intercedes for you constantly with the Father. He wasn't just closely related to God and man. He is God and man. 100% God, 100% man. And Jesus Christ was not just rebuked for your sin, friends. He was crucified for it. He was crucified on a cross with your name so that if you put your faith in him, you never have to fear the wrath of God again because it has already been poured out on Jesus once and for all. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. He did not say, it is started. Start working hard. You better not screw up or I'm kicking you out. He said, I've drained the cup of God's wrath. It's gone. I've finished the work. You repent and believe in me. That's your hope. Friends, you don't get baptized because you're perfect. You don't get baptized because you're never going to struggle again. You get baptized because Jesus is perfect, because Jesus is sufficient, because he is your mediator, and because he's the one that you want to honor. So I would just say, like, if you're worried about screwing up, it's okay. That's why you need Christ. That's why the gospel is so precious. Because your salvation is not based on your performance. It's based on his. And so I just want to ask you, like, do you need to get baptized? Is that the step that you have been putting off that you've never been dealt dealing with? And you just need to say, today I'm saying no to Egypt. I'm making a break with my old life and I'm following Christ. So we want to talk to you. We've got a baptism service coming up, coming up in a couple of weeks. We would love to talk with you about you going public with your faith right here in our midst. Here's the thing. If you are in Christ, good news, you have been saved by the blood of the Passover lamb. You don't have to work for your salvation. It's been accomplished. And now God is calling you out of Egypt and into your exodus so that you might glorify him. It's time to move forward. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you saved us through the Lamb. You call us into a life of faith and of holiness and of mission. And every time we fail, you are gracious to us and kind. And by the power of your Spirit, you're able to do things in us that we cannot do on our own. God, I pray that we'd be a church full of people who in response to the incredible news of the gospel and follow you by faith. I pray for all of those today who are processing next steps that you give them courage to do whatever it is that you're calling them to do. And that we'd be a people who walk by faith and find you faithful. 